All right, am I on? Check one, two, hello? All right, I hear myself. Well, once again, good morning, New Village Church. Uh, as you can see, I'm not Pastor Jason, uh, so if you were expecting him, sorry you're stuck with me this morning. Um, but I just want to start off and say thank you guys so much. Um, thank you, church, for uh, just showing your gratitude last week, um, just with the, the gift basket. Um, it, it means a lot. Um, sometimes ministry, you can get burnt out, you can get very discouraged, and sometimes it just feels like Satan's like just isolating and picking on you for the reason that you're a Christ follower and that you're a preacher. So uh, just thank you for the encouragement. Thank you also for the kind words and the gifts the whole month of October um, and, and into this month as well. Um, it, it's been a blessing to be a part of, of the church family. Um, and I've been here my whole life, so, but it, again, it's different when you're sort of in ministry and it's, and it's now my job. So uh, thank you so much for that. And just to be honest, moving forward, we, we don't know what's going on. Um, we're taking it one week at a time. Um, we love New Hope Baptist. We love Pastor Jason. But we're also um, just, you know, seeking the Lord's will and what's going on with our church and moving forward. So uh, just please be keeping the leadership in prayer. Keep New Hope Baptist in prayer. As I mentioned before, tonight they're going to be continuing their night services and their Thursday evening services here. Um, and as I've just been preparing this week, I, I've just, I always have a low view of myself and, and sort of a low and I'm not trying to have like this false humility, but it just blows me away looking at where I was 20 years ago or even 10 years ago and how the Lord's called me into ministry and how the Lord's equipped me and is using me and that someone as, as a sinner like myself can just preach and handle his word. So it's always a privilege and an honor to get to preach to you, my church family. Um, so let me pray and then we'll get started. Father, once again, uh, we just praise you. I come before you, Lord, as, as a sinner made righteous by Jesus' blood alone. So I, pray, I just pray, Lord, that as I preach this morning, I'm in line with your word. I pray that I don't stray from it. I pray that you uh, just guard my heart and my mind against distractions. I pray, Lord, um, just for all of us to set distractions out of our hearts and minds and that we can learn something new um, or just be reminded of the love that you have for us through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We love you, we thank you, and in your name we pray, amen. So I want to start off with just a simple fact, and I think most of us would agree with it. We live in an awesome time of technology. And some of you, you might hate technology, like I don't know how to use this stupid phone or this computer, this or that. But just think about it. If you want to watch funny videos of cats, you can find it on YouTube. If you miss your favorite TV show or your movie, you can find it within the hour that it aired on TV online somewhere. Um, you can visit any place you'd like in the world from the comfort of your couch through Google Earth. And the same thing, you go to different planets and see what the sun looks like, what Mercury, Venus, Mars, all these different planets look like. And, and it's funny because even uh, with COVID, right, sort of a, a blessing of how the Lord can be glorified through COVID is churches sort of got pushed and, and, and forced into getting into the tech world. So now more than ever, there's more churches that live stream. The gospel's being proclaimed virtually online. You can check out other churches from around the world. And um, just for myself, I love listening to these celebrity, and I use celebrity because they're well-known pastors, but these celebrity preachers on YouTube or their church websites, um, I love listening to them because they, they faithfully preach God's word and for me, they provided a lot of spiritual growth and maturity uh, for myself. But, but here's the problem, right? There are thousands of other preachers who spread a false gospel 
and technology has made it easier for them to gain momentum and to gain a crowd. There are football stadiums, there's movie theaters, there's arenas that are full of people every Sunday morning that never hear the true gospel. They might hear statements like these, well, God wants you to be happy. Or, you're going to get that promotion because God owes it to you. Or, you have the power to be good, you just have to unlock it. Or, God loves you just the way you are. Now, again, that sounds good, but if he loves me just the way I am, what's the point of the cross and Jesus Christ coming to earth to dying for us? Or, on the flip side, God is only pleased with us when we do good works, so we have to be a good person. Right? These lies are spread through churches every single Sunday. And the problem is whenever the gospel is proclaimed, Satan loves to try and pervert it and twist it into something else. And this has always been a problem from now going back to the early church. And there's one thing as a Christian and as a church that we need to make sure we get right, and that's the gospel. We can't afford to get it wrong. C.S. Lewis says in his book, Mere Christianity, if you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back on the right road. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul, with his letter to the Galatian churches, was all about. It was pointing them back to the true gospel. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to the book of Galatians. We'll be in chapter 1. For the most part, I'll bounce around a little bit within the book. But we'll be in Galatians chapter 1. This is a book of the Bible that I've been studying with the youth group this past year. Uh, I preached through it with them. And it's funny how you can read God's word over and over and over again. And every time you read it, it's like, how did I miss this? Or, or how, what, like, that's in this book? I didn't know that. So again, as I've been preparing this message and this sermon, I've read through Galatians multiple times. And, and even it's, it's, it's just amazing to see the Holy Spirit at work just pointing me to God's truth that maybe I missed or, or overlooked the first time. So hopefully you're there, or as you're turning there, I need to set the stage for who exactly Paul's writing this letter to. So in the book of Acts, in chapters 13 and 14, uh, specifically, Paul's on his first missionary journey with Barnabas, his fellow worker. They go to a city called Pisidia, and they go and they preach the gospel in a synagogue. And as they preach, it says many devout Jews and the converts, they then followed Paul after he preached on that Sabbath, and they begged him, they said, Paul, can you please come back next Sabbath? Preach again next Sabbath. We want to hear it again. Preach us the gospel. In Acts chapter 13, we read that. It says, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And as I was thinking, I was like, man, imagine if almost the whole city of Lake Grove was in our church. How crazy or how amazing would that be? And, and I'm not talking about just to get more people to fill our pews, but people who have never heard of Jesus or who don't know him as their Lord and Savior, hearing the gospel, hearing the good news for the first time. So they preach the gospel, and then it says that the Jews become jealous because the Gentiles were there, and the Gentile people, they were rejoicing, they were being saved at hearing God's word. And then Paul and Barnabas were then driven and forced out of the city of Pisidia by these jealous Jews. Next we read they go to the city of Iconium and they preach the gospel in yet another synagogue and it says both a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But then it says the unbelieving Jews, it stirred up, they stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and poisoned their minds towards Paul and Barnabas. 
And then we read that they stayed there for a long time, faithfully preaching the word and, and boldly preaching it, granting signs and wonders to prove their message and authority. And then when they heard of a plan to stone them, they fled. They, they left that city of Iconium. And then they went to another city called Lystra. And upon arriving, they healed a crippled man. And the whole town worshipped Paul and Barnabas because of the miracle that they did, because they believed them to be the Greek gods Zeus and Hermes. And that's a whole other sermon for a whole other time. But when they heard of this, they corrected the town, and they preached to them the gospel. They didn't take the credit and the glory for themselves. Then we read in Acts that the jealous Jews from each of those cities that they were previously in sort of found them, and they followed them, and they persuaded the crowds to stone Paul. And we read that he was stoned, and his body was, was sort of taken out of the town, but he survived. And they left the city, Paul and Barnabas. And at this point, you'd be like, okay, Paul, maybe take a moment, maybe come up with a different mission statement, right? You literally just got stoned to death. Maybe you should just change the way you do things. But what do we read that, what does Paul do? It says he goes to another city of Derby to preach the gospel. And he makes disciples there. And then in the, the, the end of Acts 14, it says that they returned to each one of those previous cities and they strengthened the souls of the disciples. They encouraged them in their faith and they appointed to them elders at each of those churches. So in Acts 13 and 14, there's this pattern that Paul preaches the gospel. Both Jews and Gentiles believe, but the Jews who don't convert are getting jealous and angry that the Gentiles are now invited in to, to receive salvation through Jesus Christ. So again, these churches in the city of Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, these are the churches that Paul's writing the letter, his letter to the Galatian uh, churches, that's who it's written to. They're all in the southern region of Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. Right? Most of Paul's letters, except Galatians, are written to a specific church in a specific city. But the book of Galatians is written to multiple churches in these multiple cities that he just established. He established these churches, and then he's writing this letter because he's hearing that something's happening when he was absent, when he left them. So let's read Galatians chapter 1. I'll, I'll try to stick to the first 10 verses. Here we go. Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and Father to whom the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you to the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So if you have your bulletin, maybe you, you picked up, there's some notes in here. Uh, there's a little bit of an outline. I'm going to give you the, the three blanks, the three big ones. So in these 10 verses, we see that Paul's doing pretty much three things. Number one, Paul defends his authority. He's defending his apostleship. The second thing we see Paul doing is he's defending Christ's gospel. 
And the third thing, there, there's a warning of preaching a false gospel. So authority, apostleship, Christ's gospel, and then preaching a false gospel. So point number one, Paul's defending his authority. So these false teachers, these Judaizers, were coming into the churches in Galatia, and they were publicly attacking Paul's authority, and they were slandering him. His apostleship was under attack. And if you look carefully, look how Paul decides to start his letter in verse 1 of Galatians. Paul, an apostle, not from man, men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So he starts off reminding the Galatian people that it, he didn't get ordained in a local church. He didn't go to seminary or go to a school to be ordained by God or to grow in his wisdom of the gospel. But it was a divine calling given to him by God, by Jesus himself. His authority, his calling, his mission came from Jesus Christ personally while he was traveling to the city of Damascus to persecute Christians at that time. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 9. And then look a little bit further. We didn't read this, but in uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, he gives a little bit more insight of, of his um, testimony. So he says, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. I just love that Paul's, he's not bragging, but he's saying of how Jewish he was. He was top of the class. He wasn't just some average, everyday Jew, but he was a Pharisee, and he was like most zealous, and he was top Pharisee. And we'll continue. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. So again, we see that Paul is, is getting the gospel revealed. He's called by Jesus Christ himself. And I love that he says he immediately doesn't consult with anybody. So that when I, when I read this, it, it doesn't mean he went to the apostles right away and was like, hey, Jesus just came and spoke to me. Is, 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 I don't know what's going on. Can you help me out? It says that and for three years he, he withdrew. He went to Arabia. He withdrew. And I believe he was strengthened and being trained by the Holy Spirit and equipped for his ministry. So he, he takes time to, to study the word with the Holy Spirit's help and guidance to preach the gospel that he was called to preach. So if you have your notes, there's sort of three defenses that Paul makes about his authority. The first one we just went over was he's called by God. He's not called from a man, but he's called from God who's the ultimate authority. His next defense is this, letter B. He was accepted and his authority was affirmed by the other apostles, and you can read about that in Galatians chapter 2. So as Paul's setting up all these churches in, in, in Acts 13 and 14, all those cities I told you about, there's this question that comes up, and it, it's, it's this, what do we do with these Gentile converts? Do they have to become circumcised? Do they have to follow the Mosaic laws? Do they have to follow the ritual and ceremonial and dietary laws? And then Acts chapter 15, there's something called the Jerusalem Council. All the apostles get together with Paul and Barnabas, and they try to figure out, seeking the Lord's will, what do we do with these converts? And in, in, fift, in Acts 15, we see that Peter's there. He gives a testimony. Paul and Barnabas share their testimonies of what God has been doing with their missionary journeys. James, the half-brother of Jesus who wrote the book of James, he's also there sharing this his testimony. And the final verdict and the decision of the Jerusalem Council was that the Gentiles do not have to become Jews or become circumcised or follow the Mosaic law. And I love Peter's testimony. This is what Peter says, prompted by the Holy Spirit in Acts 15, about whether or not the Gentiles should follow the law. 
he says, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them, the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, the Jews. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. That's important to remember, by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. So we have Peter saying, why would we possibly make the Gentiles follow the law when we couldn't do it and our fathers couldn't do it? Why would we give them that, that yoke or that, that bondage of slavery? He says they're justified, they're, they're, their hearts are cleansed by faith. So the apostles, the men who spent three years with Jesus in his public ministry, saw him crucified, saw him risen again, saw him ascend up to heaven, received the Holy Spirit. They affirm Paul's authority and his apostleship at the Jerusalem Council. They approve that, hey, Paul, you are on mission. What God has given you, keep doing. Keep following your mission. Preach the gospel to the Gentiles. His last offense, letter C, is that we see him publicly correct and rebuke the apostle Peter in his sin. And in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, so if you can turn there, this is what we read. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For bef before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. So we see that Peter leaves Jerusalem. He goes to Antioch, where Paul is. And, and Paul's seeing this, that he's eating with the Galatians. He's hanging out with them. He's fellowshipping with them. And then the Jewish people, for, it says from James, so most likely from Jerusalem, they come, and Peter's like, oh, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go over here. right? And, and he, he sort of pretty much is a hypocrite in what was spoken about at the Jerusalem council. And this is what we read in, in, in verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. Because of Peter's influence and his apostleship, he led others, other Jews, to act hypocritically. So that even Barnabas, Paul's companion, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? So Paul had every single right and authority to publicly rebuke Peter because he was condemned. He stood condemned. He was in sin. And to many of the Jewish Christians, Peter sort of seemed like the, their, their, their spiritual father, almost like he was on that pedestal and he was untouchable, like he could do no wrong. But in Galatians chapter 2, we see that Paul calls him out in his sin, has every right to. And Paul also understood that both he and Peter were called by Jesus to preach the same gospel message. Paul was called to the Gentiles, and Peter's called to the Jews. They're called to preach the same gospel, not a different gospel, the same gospel. So Paul had to correct Peter because his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So again, to summarize, off the bat, Paul is defending his authority in this letter and reminding the Galatian people that, one, he's called by God himself. The second, he's affirmed by the apostles. His mission, his gospel message is affirmed by the apostles. And he had the authority and right to publicly call out Peter in his sin, and he was correct in doing so. 
And I was just thinking this, in our lives, right, people will no doubt, they'll try to attack our character. I don't know if that's ever happened to you or people have slandered you, right? For some reason, they just, I get so angry and it's like, I just want to go in and just fight somebody. I'm like, how could you do this? And the truth is that Satan loves to plant seeds of doubt in our minds and our hearts, but we need to remember that we've been called by God. When Satan attacks us and makes us doubt who we are, we have to stand firm in the promises that God gives us in his word. Just listen to this. A little bit later in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So Paul's reminding them, you're adopted into God's family. You're adopted as his sons, as his daughters. So again, Paul's defending his authority because the false teachers are attacking him. The second thing that Paul that we see from these 10 verses here is that Paul now defends Christ's gospel, point number two. As I mentioned earlier, as Christians, the one thing we can't get wrong is the gospel. And I don't want you to answer it out loud, but if I asked you, and I'll ask you right now, what is the gospel? Could you answer it? I'll, I'll give you 10 seconds. Don't answer, just, or don't say, say it out loud. Think in your mind. What is the gospel? Sometimes in church, there's, I like to call them Christianese words, that you're like, yeah, faith, grace, uh, uh, mercy, gospel, trinity, you, you know, all these words that you're like, yeah, they, I know what they mean. I hear them in church all the time. But then when people ask you, you're like, oh, I don't, I don't, maybe I don't know that for sure. So again, what is the gospel? Could you answer it? For Paul, his authority is under attack by these false teachers, but also so is the gospel of that Christ commanded him to preach. Look at Galatians 1, verse 11 to 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus. Paul's not preaching any sort of doctrine or truth that came from men, that he heard from other people, that he learned in, in, in Torah school, but he taught the true gospel that he received directly from Jesus it wasn't like a game of telephone where Jesus told somebody who told somebody who then told somebody else who then told somebody and then they said, hey, Paul, this is what Jesus told me, who told me, who told them, who told them. It was Jesus came directly to Paul with this message, with this revelation, preaching his gospel. So again, I ask, what is the gospel? Now, the word gospel literally means good news. If you translate it literally, good news. The first four books of the New Testament, you've probably heard the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of John. My Bible, when I open it up, it, it literally says up top, the Gospel according to Matthew. Or you can translate, the good news according to Matthew. So what's this good news? Well, before we get there, we've got to start with bad news. The bad news is that everybody in this room is a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. The Bible is clear on that. It says that we've all have sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory, of his standard. We've fallen short of being perfect. Because God is sinless and holy and eternal, sin cannot be in his presence. And sin, according to the Bible, has a price. 
and that price or the cost of sin is death. So the bad news is we're all sinners who are guilty before God, guilty of death because we've rebelled against an, an eternal, holy, and perfect God. We're not able to save ourselves, and we're in need of somebody's help. We're in need of a Savior. And here's where this good news comes in. The gospel is the story of God's grace, his love, his mercy towards us sinners. Jesus Christ, who is God, came down from heaven to live among his creation. He lived a perfect and a sinless life that none of us could ever live. He was put to death on the cross in our place, taking our sin and our shame. He bore the wrath of God, the punishment that we deserve because of our sin. He was buried and he raised back again on the third day, showing his power and his authority over death itself. He purchased us with his blood, made, it right, made a right way for us to be made right before God. And in church, we call that we're justified. We're made right before God. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's nothing we can offer God to earn our way to heaven. Jesus paid it all on the cross. And if you look what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 3 to 5, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 4, he gives them the gospel. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. So we see that Jesus willingly went to the cross to die in our place. He didn't, like, draw the, the short straw or lose a bet or was forced to go to the cross. He willingly took our place. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says this, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? So, so why would Christ die? I, I wouldn't die for my enemy, and I'm, I'm just being honest, right? Uh, maybe I'd die for a good person. Maybe for someone I love, I'd be more inclined to, to take the bullet for them, right? But why would Jesus, and the Bible says, while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, he died for us. Why, why would he do that? And there's one word, and that word is grace. Grace. The cross is a powerful reminder of how much grace, love, and mercy that God has for us. It reminds us how far Jesus went to save us and that the price of our sin has been paid in full. And this is the gospel, what I just said, that's the gospel that Paul's proclaimed to the Gentiles in his first missionary journey, that we're justified, that we're made right before God through faith alone in Jesus. But now that gospel was under attack by these false teachers, by these Judaizers, who came into the church after Paul left. In verses 6 and 7 of Galatians 1, he says, I'm astonished, I'm shocked, I'm, I'm blown away that you're so quickly deserting him, deserting Jesus, who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. These Jewish false teachers were coming into the churches and they claimed, hey, you know Paul? Yeah, he had it all wrong. What he said, he, he, he wasn't correct. They attacked his authority first because I think once you break someone's authority down, then it's more easily that you can break down and, and sort of tell them that, hey, he's lying. You could attack his message. So these false teachers, they claimed that it wasn't enough to be justified, to be made right in God's eyes by faith alone. 
they taught that in order for the Gentiles to be, you know, real Christians, they had uh, and have eternal life. They first had to become circumcised. They had to become Jewish and follow the Mosaic law for living found in the Old Testament. They they were preaching it's Jesus plus the law equals eternal life. Jesus plus the law equals pleasing God. And that's the false gospel that's being preached throughout these churches in Galatia. And that's the message that Paul is correcting while he's preaching or while he's writing this letter to them. Paul then spends the last 75% of Galatians from pretty much chapters two and a half to six all about defending the truth of the gospel that we're not saved by works of the law, we're not justified by being obedient to the law, but, 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 but that we're saved and justified by grace. And again, as I'm reading this, it's scary about how quickly these Galatians were buying into this false gospel being preached. And the more I thought about it, I thought it was even scarier that the churches in America seem to be not so different. Like I mentioned before, there's football stadiums packed with people every week hearing a false gospel from a false preacher. It almost seems like the churches that, that preach falseness, that preach lies and heresy, are more packed than the churches that preach God's word. So again, as Christians, as, as a church, as New Village Church, how can we protect ourselves, how can we protect our families from being swept away by lies? I had sort of three ideas, or really they're Paul's ideas if you have your notes. The first is this, mature in your faith. Mature in your faith. In Ephesians, Paul says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So if you think about a boat that's stuck in the middle of the ocean, they have no rudder, maybe they have a sail, right? The only way that boat is going to move is if the waves push it one way or if the wind blows it one way. So maybe one day the wind's blowing it this way, so the boat goes this way. Maybe the next day the wind's going this way and the waves bring the boat that way, right? There's, there's no control, there's no foundation. And Paul's saying, mature in your faith. Don't be like that as a Christian, being swept away, tossed to and fro by every sort of doctrine you hear. Have a foundation, Mature in your faith. He says, rather speaking truth and love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is head, into Christ. Now in the Bible, there's, there's sort of two words. There's justification, which is the one-time action. When you repent from your sins and you say, Jesus, it's not about me. I can't save myself. I put my faith and trust in you. We receive the Holy Spirit. We become a new creation. In that moment, we're justified. We're made right in God's eyes. We're adopted into his family. But then there's this word sanctification, which is a process. It's the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. When we receive the Holy Spirit, we were given a new heart, a new nature, and our heart longs to be like Jesus. And some people have, des- have described sanctification as like a staircase. We start at the bottom, and Jesus is at the top, and we don't reach Jesus until heaven. We're totally sanctified when we're in heaven. But as we live our lives, we're going to be going closer and closer to Jesus. Some days you might go up three steps, but then maybe the next day you might go back a step or two. But it's this continual process of becoming more and more like Jesus, maturing in your faith. The second thing that, that again, in your notes, number B, check everything against God's word. No matter what is preached from this pulpit, if it comes out of my mouth or someone else's mouth or another church or anything you hear online, you check it against God's word. If what I'm speaking today goes against what the Bible says, who's wrong? Me, not God's word. God's word is perfect. 
So check everything against God's word. Don't take everything that I say to be truth just because I said it. I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. God's word is perfect. Check everything against his word. The last thing, as, as, as some advice, pray and ask the Holy Spirit for discernment. There are times in my life where I've made wrong decisions. And because of that, I've sort of felt like my heart's like getting tugged at. And I'm like, you know, I just, I don't, I, I can't get any peace. I don't feel at ease with, what, 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 with what's going on in my life. And I really think that the Holy Spirit's sort of tugging on you saying, no, 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 that's the wrong thing. That was the wrong thing to do. Right, so as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit who comforts us, who guides us, who helps us discern and read God's word and makes it alive and active. So as Christians, pray and ask the sermon. Pray for the Spirit's help. If something's being preached and you're like, I don't know about that, that could be the Spirit prompting you to check it against God's word. And there's one more thing, the last point that we see from these ten verses here in Galatians we see that there's a warning of preaching a false gospel. Verse 8 and 9. But if even we or an angel from heaven should preach you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So Paul states this warning twice. When you read things like that in the Bible, you should probably stop and say, whoa, why did he repeat that? Right? It's there for a reason. It's there to show the importance of it. Paul is stating that if anybody comes into the church, and even if it's a spiritual being, and if they, they, they claim to be an angel from God, yet they preach a gospel contrary, a gospel different than what Paul preached to them, he says, let them be accursed. And that word accursed, meaning anathema, it refers to animals that were doomed to die as a sacrifice. Later, this word is translated to curse, or a thing that's devoted to destruction. And I don't want you to miss this. Paul is using a very strong warning, a very strong language here, when he's talking about the severe consequences that await those who preach a false gospel. And again, you might be thinking, wow, Paul, that's a pretty bold claim to make. How can you say that what you're saying is correct if someone comes in, and even an angel comes in? You know, how, how, can, you, how can you say that? Again, Paul has the right to make that claim and that curse because he was divinely chosen by Jesus himself, directly, personally, on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. So then Paul ends this section, and in verse 10 he says this, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And another claim that these false teachers were making that they were saying, Paul's making it too easy for you. He, he's setting the bar lower for you, Gentile people. He, he, all Paul cares about is getting more and more disciples, more and more followers. That was their claim. They were saying, again, Paul's looking for approval or affirmation from men. He's being a people pleaser. He's making it too easy. And again, Paul's cursing over these false teachers in verses 8 and 9. This is language that you would not use to make friends. Right? This is not a language or, or a phrase you would use to try to win people to your side. If anything, it shows his defense that proclaiming the true gospel is more important than pleasing people. Paul's not trying to please men or win them over at the expense of changing Christ's gospel. He cared more about pleasing God than pleasing people. 
And I think we can learn from Paul here and, and truly ask ourselves, personally as a church, do we care more about pleasing people or pleasing God? I'd like to say that every time I've done things, it's all about me wanting to please God, but sadly, it's not. Sometimes I do swept up with, please, with, getting, with wanting uh, to please and, and get affirmation from people. And I don't know if you knew this, but last week was the 504th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And just to summarize it really, really quickly, I'm not going to give you a, a huge historic timeline, but on October 31st, in 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the Catholic Church in defense of the gospel. The Catholic Church was selling something called indulgences to people, which was a piece of paper giving you less time in purgatory. In a sense, it was a get-out-of-hell free card, except it wasn't free. They were charging and scamming people and saying, if you want eternal life, buy this paper. This will, this will satisfy and earn your way to heaven. Buy this paper. As Martin Luther studied God's word and read it, he came to this conclusion. You've probably heard this phrase before. Sola fide. It means faith alone. He claimed that sinners were justified by their faith in Jesus Christ. There was no need to buy these indulgences to earn salvation because we can't earn it. The Protestant Reformation forever changed Christianity moving forward, all because Luther fought for the gospel, the true gospel. He cared more about pleasing God and being obedient to his word than pleasing men, pleasing the Catholic Church. And maybe you're thinking, okay, well, it's just the church. Back then, the Catholic Church was a powerhouse in society. The Catholic Church ruled almost every part of, of life, and it had influence over almost everything. He cared more about pleasing God and going against the heresy that the church was doing at, and preaching at that time. Again, he fought for the simple truth that we're saved through faith alone, which should sound very familiar because he probably got it from Paul's letter in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, that says this. Yet we know that a person is not justified. A person's not made right by their works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And church, New Village Church, we are called to preach the gospel. We're, we're called to do it. That is our mission. It's not my job. It's not any other pastor's job. It's not our missionary's job alone. If you're a Christian and you're a follower of Christ, you're called to go out and to make disciples, to proclaim Christ as Lord and Savior, to preach his gospel. Again, in this world, there's, it, it seems like the gospel is so easily perverted and, and twisted. And our, and our challenge and our charge is to stand firm in God's word and boldly preach the truth. As I mentioned before, right, it seems like preaching the gospel is not the popular thing to do. Why? Because the gospel is offensive. The gospel says that you're not good enough and that you'll never be good enough. Right? If you said that to somebody, they'd be like, well, that's kind of mean. Why would you say that to me? But that's the truth. The truth is you cannot earn your way. You can't donate enough money to charity. You can't do enough good than bad works. And it's not like a scale to, to please God. And I use this analogy with the youth group kids. If you're applying for a job, right, you, you look your best, you put your best suit on, you get your resume, you get your parents or, or someone you trust to, to, to spell check and make sure there's no typos, right? Here's the best version of myself. Please hire me. 
If you go before God with that, without Jesus Christ, the Bible says it's worthless. It's not enough. Again, we're justified. We're made right by Jesus Christ, by putting our faith in him alone. And I want to end with this beautiful benediction, this, this closing found in the book of Hebrews. And I want to use it sort of as, as a challenge or a charge for our church. This is what the author says in Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you, we praise you. We thank you that from Galatians, from Paul's letter, we learn that you willingly went to the cross to bear our sin and our shame. We thank you, Jesus, that because of your sacrifice, that you truly paid it all on the cross. That it's not you plus anything else for salvation, but it's salvation through faith alone in you. God, I just pray if there's anybody here this morning who is not saved, who is not a Christian, I pray, Lord, that your word and your truth will pierce their hearts. I pray that you stir their hearts and, they, and that they can come up to an elder or me and ask us questions, and we'd love to tell them about Jesus. Father, I just pray for us as a church, as, as your body, as Christians, I pray that we boldly preach Christ's gospel, that we don't get caught up with these lies, that we don't preach any sort of distorted or perverted gospel because it seems like the easier thing to do, but we stand firm in your truth and your word, boldly preaching you. Jesus, I just pray that you give us boldness, you give us courage, you give us Again, be, uh, your spirit to guide us in conversations as we go out and make disciples. We love you. We thank you so much that you've adopted us as sons and daughters because of your sacrifice on the cross for us, Jesus. And in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.